0: We're good to start, right, Greg? Okay. All right. Welcome to Sunday School. We're continuing through our study of the New Testament, especially the epistles, and we've been examining some of the great themes that appear in the epistles, and they really all flow into each other, and you'll begin to see that more as we look at today's lesson. We started by first looking at the relationship of faith and works. We are indeed, as believers, saved by faith alone, but that faith always produces a changed life. It produces a life of good works. We also talked about the concept of being children of God. This was our most recent discussion. We saw how we have been given the promise of fatherly care and of a future inheritance by way of adoption. God has adopted us. But we also saw that we've been given power to overcome sin by regeneration and the new birth. We're not just called children of God, but we actually are children of God. And as a result of our becoming children of God, we do what really our class is about today. We pray without ceasing. One of the things that we looked at last time is that as children of God, we cry out, Abba, Father. And that's really what we do in prayer. Just as a child constantly talks to and cries out for his parents, so we cry out to God. We pray to God. Now, prayer should be one of the most Central aspects of the Christian life. Yet, as you know, it is often the most neglected, the most underused. There's so much misunderstanding and confusion and even frustration when it comes to prayer. Thankfully, the Bible has much to say on the topic, even in the epistles. And so that's what we want to do today. Here's our agenda we want to look at two passages, just small bits of the passages, really. We're looking at Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and then 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. We'll talk about application, and then we'll consider some of the frequently asked questions when it comes to prayer. We'll see if we can answer them at least briefly. Let's pray before we go further. Our Lord and God, our Father, I thank you for these people at Calvary, and I pray that you would grow them and that you would bless them. I pray that this time now would be an edifying time for them, that you would work in their hearts by your spirit, encourage them, convict them, instruct them, inform them, help them to be able to speak well. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's take a look at these passages. We're going to start with Philippians chapter 4. So please open your Bibles there and let's take a look. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is a pretty famous passage. You may have even memorized these verses already. But as always, we don't want to just be hearers or memorizers, but actually doers of the word. You may recall that the book of Philippians is mostly a letter of commendation and encouragement to this faithful church and ministry partner to Paul. But there is one overriding concern that appears throughout the book of Philippians. What's that concern that comes through in chapters two, three, and four in Philippians? Do any of you do any of you know? It's the unity of the church. In chapter two, he talks about being humble, having a regard for others as being more important than yourselves. Chapter three, he talks about protecting against false teachers and following following the example of Paul. And then when we get to chapter four, he addresses a, a an item of contention in the church even more directly. Now we're going to focus on just verses six and seven in this chapter, but I want to read verses 2 to 9 so you get some context and you see how this, how this specific instruction about prayer fits into the larger purpose of the book. So look at verse 2, or we'll read down to verse 9 of Philippians 4. Paul the Apostle writes here, I urge Iodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the Book of Life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. you. All right, let's study through this passage using our three-part method, starting with observations. Notice verses 2 to 9 feature various commands and applications, but there is one concept that keeps getting repeated. What concept is repeated throughout these commands? It's the idea of peace. Notice verse two, he says, I urge these two women to live in harmony and to have peace in their relationship. Or verse five, he talks about having a gentle spirit. A gentle spirit is for promoting peace. Verse seven refers specifically to the peace of God. And verse nine calls God the God of peace. So peace really pervades all of these commands. Now let's look more closely at verses six and seven. It says there two commands. Be anxious for nothing and let your request be made known to God. And notice that these commands are contrasting, but also complementary. The first command is stated very emphatically. Be anxious for nothing. In other words, when you think about the category of what, what ought to concern you, make you fearful, make you anxious, there's only one thing that should be in that category, and that is nothing. Nothing should make you anxious. Now, how is that possible? There are plenty of things in life that we could think of that could make us anxious, both in the short and the long term. But Paul says you shouldn't be anxious for anything. The only thing you're allowed to be anxious for is nothing. And then notice the connection of this command with the next command. And we'll see it bit by bit. It says, but in everything. But is a strong contrasting word. And then everything is in direct contrast to the nothing at the beginning of the verse. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. So if nothing is allowed to cause you anxiety, whatever might have caused you anxiety is instead to be included in this category of everything. What are we to do in this everything? In every circumstance, every concern, every trouble, every trial or situation, we are to exercise certain means. And notice what comes next in the verse. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Now, these terms are all pretty related, but they have different emphases. Prayer as a general word for communication to God. Supplication refers to a specific kind of prayer that is making requests, letting your needs be known, uh, speaking in an urgent way. Please meet these needs. That's supplication. And Paul often uses these two terms together in his letters prayer and supplication. And then thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is another kind of prayer. It refers to expressions of gratitude and praise for what someone has done or will do. And of course, that someone in this case is God. So Paul says in everything, in contrast to being anxious, in everything we are to be exercising the means of prayer and supplication along with thanksgiving. But what are we to do in in utilizing all those things? And we see that at the end of this command let your request be made known to God. Instead of worrying, believers are to make the request known to God in prayers and supplications with thanksgiving. That's pretty straightforward, right? No anxiety, just asking God in every circumstance. Bringing your request to God, letting your request to God be known in every circumstance. Now, verse 7 describes the results of such action the peace of god will guard your hearts and your minds now recall that heart and mind are essentially synonyms referring to the inner person he's not making division between heart and mind it's just a way of emphasizing your inner person the totality of you on the inside it will be guarded as a result of your not worrying but instead asking god your soul will be protected by god's peace and notice the astounding nature of this piece, as described by Paul. This peace not only surpasses comprehension, it surpasses all comprehension. No one anywhere at any time is able to fully understand or comprehend this peace. It goes beyond the power of the human mind. And then notice the final phrase. In Christ Jesus. This guarding of peace only comes through Jesus. Well, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There is no peace, and this is often been said, there is no true peace outside the Prince of Peace. Now, while this is pretty straightforward, this is going to generate some questions. So let's move to the interpretation step. We've made our observations, looked at the basic facts of what's presented here, the details, and now let's see if we can answer some questions about it. Now, our passage clearly presents prayer as a counter to anxiety. Why should prayer eliminate anxiety? Is that a uh, hand I don't know if you said anything. I didn't hear anything in response. But why should prayer eliminate anxiety? Yes, yeah, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. This goes right back to the relationship that we have with God. If God is our father, and he is what we believe in Jesus, then when we pray to him, we don't have anything to worry about anymore. It's just like what Jesus says in Matthew 6. You remember, he very uh, emphatically deals with the issue of worry. And he says, do not worry about your life, what you will put on, what you will eat or what you will drink because your Father in heaven knows your needs, and he will meet your needs. So don't worry. It's the same thing here. Because of our relationship with God, because of what we've become in Christ Jesus, we have no need to worry. We can pray. God is wise enough, he's loving enough, and powerful enough to meet our needs perfectly, and to answer all our requests. The children of God ought to be anxious for nothing. But Christian experience shows us that though children of God may often pray to him, they can remain anxious in heart. Christians can still be anxious even after they pray. Now, why is that? If this passage says, don't be anxious, but let your requests be made known to God. I think I saw a hand behind Steve, but I can't quite see who that is. Sorry, I can only partially hear what you're saying. Can you say that again just a little bit louder? Right, I think you've hit on a a major aspect of it, and that is, in many cases, we remain anxious because we don't actually believe God. Just as you were saying, we go through the form of prayer, we say words, but we're not actually exercising belief. We're double-minded, as James says. We're honestly not sure whether God will take care of what we have presented to him. We feel the need to continue to think through and ponder over all of our anxious thoughts. We aren't willing to let that issue go, not willing to leave it with God and focus on something else. We remain in unbelief. Now, this is unnecessary as children of God, and it dishonors our Father. We have every reason to trust the Lord, trust our Father. So that is one reason why we remain anxious even after we pray, because we don't really believe. We are doubting the Lord. But another reason I think that we sometimes remain anxious is because we have idols still in our hearts. We have these certain lusts, these certain idols in our hearts. Because God has promised to meet all our needs. But sometimes we think we need a certain thing in a certain way at a certain time. We become obsessed with obtaining this thing. And the prospect of not receiving it fills us with dread. This is really what the Bible calls an idol. Now, God doesn't promise to meet our idols, doesn't promise to meet our every desire. And even those things he has promised to meet, he hasn't promised to meet them according to the way we think immediately or in a certain way. So when we pray about something that we think is a supposed need, but is not guaranteed by God, we know that there's there's a chance we might not get it. And therefore, our hearts continue to be anxious. God hasn't guaranteed it. We think we need it. We don't know if we'll get it. And so we remain anxious. The solution, of course, in such situations is to let go of our idols, to let go of these strong desires and let God have his perfect way. If God hasn't specifically promised it, we can't cling to it. But if he has promised it, we got to let him do it in his way, in his time, because otherwise we will remain anxious. So unbelief in idols, they will continue to plague us with anxiety even after we go through the form of prayer. Now, the direct opposite to anxiety is peace. But in what sense is the peace that is described here the peace of God? You may have noticed phrases that use of appear frequently in the Bible. They're usually what's called genitives in Greek or Hebrew, and they can be understood in different ways depending on the context. Here, this idea of the peace of God, it certainly indicates to us the idea of source. This is the peace that comes from God. The origin is with God. But there's also the sense of possession here. This is the peace that belongs to God. It's his peace. It's his unique, powerful peace. This may bring back to mind the words of Jesus. John fourteen twenty-seven. Jesus says this to his disciples, John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So this is the peace from God, it is God's own peace, but there's also the idea of action in this phrase. This is the peace that God makes, or God brings about, that God puts into somebody. He brings this peace about. He makes his people to be at peace in their hearts and minds through Christ. So this not only comes from God and is his, but it is what he actively produces in someone. And this is, of course, just as Jesus says in John 14, a a kind of peace that is very different from the world's peace. This peace cannot be taken away, though it can be given up through sin and unbelief. And it also surpasses comprehension. Now, in what sense does God's peace surpass all comprehension? There are at least two ways. First of all, because of what this peace is and where it comes from. This peace is of such a magnitude that no person could ever fully imagine it or comprehend it. The peace we have from God our Father means we are ridiculously well provided for, loved, and secured. Other people in the world might experience certain measures of peace but nothing like the peace of God God's peace is a soul peace a soul invading and filling peace that stretches into eternity and lifts up the soul no matter the circumstance such peace is incredible in our world which is so filled with art or with fallenness with tragedy and with confusion In one sense, it's not surprising that God's peace should so surpass understanding because he himself surpasses all understanding. It's his peace that he's given to us. But there's another sense here that that, that makes this peace go beyond comprehension and that this peace of God does not fully rely on man's understanding. One might expect That one could only be at peace in this world if, if a person knows exactly what's going to happen in his life and how specifically God will protect and provide through every circumstance. But the peace of God does not work this way. How many godly men and women have testified across time, I don't know how God will provide, but I know he will provide. You see, this is the peace of God. It is a peace that does not rely on an exact understanding of circumstances or of God's plans. Rather, it relies on a simple understanding of who God is as Heavenly Father. This may remind you of those verses in Proverbs, right? Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. This is also the incomprehensible nature of the peace of God. And again, the people of the world cannot know this peace because they do not know the God of this peace. But we, as children of God, we know this peace, even if we don't fully comprehend it in all its magnitude. Now, we noted that verses two to nine, they discuss peace. Oop, I forgot to put that one up. Verses two to nine discuss peace both within a person and within the church. What is the relationship between a believer's inward peace and the peace with the brethren? There is a strong connection, right? One leads to the other. When people are at peace within, there will be peace without and this is reflected very well in james 4 verse 1 james asks there what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you that is among you believers is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members that's very interesting james says where did these quarrels and conflicts come in the church they come from the wars that rage within yourselves In the flesh, overcoming the spirit. You see, experiencing the righteous peace and contentment of God in the heart is vital for securing harmony in relationships, especially in the church. Consequently, anyone who is caught in the grip of worry or who anxiously seeks after an idol, he not only hurts himself, but he hurts the whole church. If there is no peace within, how can there be maintained peace without? But of course, God has given us the remedy for this. Pray to your father. Let your request be made known to God and believe in his good provision. We are to do as Hannah does in 1 Samuel chapter 1. You may remember she was severely distressed. She was barren, but being provoked by her husband's other wife. She wasn't even able to eat but says she prayed to God and then she went away and ate, no longer sad. She had not yet received the Lord's provision. She didn't know exactly what the Lord would do, but she prayed to God about it and trusted that God would provide an answer. We ought to do the same. So in summary, when it comes to prayer in Philippians 4, 6 to 7, we see that as God's children, we ought never to be anxious. Instead, we are to make our requests known to God by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving and being secured wholly by the peace of God through Christ. This peace does not need to see with the eyes in order to wait confidently on God's provision. Now, from this teaching from Paul, it is implied that we will pray a lot. I mean, if we're tempted to worry a lot and we're instead instead of worrying, pray to God, then we're going to be praying pretty frequently. But how frequently? Let's turn over to our other passage now. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 16 to 18. So just a little bit further forward in the New Testament. Just recall briefly the context of this next set of verses. First Thessalonians, Paul is urging this church of believers to persevere in holiness through suffering in light of Christ's imminent return. Christ is, a, is going to come back. So keep going, church. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 21, we see a final quick series of applications and exhortations from Paul to the church. It's kind of like the, the lightning round of the letter, as it were. We're going to be focusing on verses 16 to 18, but as before, I want you to read some of the surrounding verses so you can see the context. Look at verses 14 to 24 and 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul writes again, this is Paul. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for another And for all people, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul be preserved complete. Without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, faithful is he who calls you, and he will also, or he also will bring it to pass. Right, let's observe these verses. You may notice we could make a number of parallels from this passage to the Philippians passage we just read. We also notice that there is a repetition in both passages of the idea of peace, not just inner peace, but Peace in the church, this idea of gentleness and doing good to others in the body. Let's focus on verses 16 to 18. Notice in these verses, we have three commands given in quick succession. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. And notice how inclusive these commands are. When are we to rejoice? Always. When are we to pray? Without ceasing. Or without stopping, without gaps. When are we to give thanks? In everything. Those are very striking commands. The implication is that there is no situation in which rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks are not appropriate or necessary. Things are going well? Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Things are not going well? rejoice pray and give thanks and notice the reason given for what for fulfilling these commands verse 18 for this is god's will for you in christ jesus god's will god's desire god's plan for you if you are in christ and if you're a believer you are in christ you're in union with christ you're attached to him god's will for you is that you continually rejoice pray and give thanks So whatever situation you find yourself, you not only know what to do, but why you ought to do it. Rejoice, pray, give thanks, because such is the will of God your Father for all of those who are in Christ. Okay, again, this is pretty straightforward, but let's ask some interpretation questions. How literally should we understand these terms always, without ceasing, and in everything? Well, common sense would tell us that these do not apply to every nanosecond of our lives. After all, you can't do all of these things while you're sleeping. And even if you do try to maintain all of these things while you're awake, well, you're going to neglect other commands of God in for for life and ministry. Because if you're praying and you and you're praising God in your prayer and you are um uh, you're filled with joy and thanksgiving, you're you're not able to rebuke others who are in sin. Or you're not able to teach others about various things in the Bible because you're off praying. So we know that there is a limit to understanding the continual nature of these commands. But Paul is clearly emphatic about the constant nature of these activities. Each of them is to be unceasing. These are not things that you and I can merely get around to every once in a while. So how are we to understand this? I think one way to help us is to consider our own Lord's life on the earth. Consider, on the one hand, though Jesus was not doing each of these things visibly every moment, they were the constant beating of his heart. Jesus always loved and delighted to do the Father's will. He was in a constant state of communion with his God. And he was constantly living in thankfulness to the Father. We could say Jesus' heart was continually rejoicing in, praying to, and giving thanks to God. This was his unending heart attitude. On the other hand, though Jesus had these constant heart attitudes, he also frequently, to the point of it being very noticeable, even a habit of Jesus, he engaged in the activities of rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. I'll listen to a few scriptures that describe Jesus' life. Luke 10, 21a. At that very time, he, as Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Or John fifteen eleven. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Mark 1:35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Luke 5:16. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. And Luke 6:12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. John eleven forty one, 41, so they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And then John 6, a Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. So we can see from even this smattering of verses that Jesus' joy, his prayer, his thanksgiving, they were not merely heart attitudes. But they were constant actions typifying his life. In every circumstance, every situation, Jesus rejoiced, Jesus prayed, and he gave thanks to the Father. We ought to do the same. Jesus has left us a pattern. Our hearts are to be in a continued attitude of joy, communion, and thankfulness to God. But that heart attitude ought to manifest itself in habitual acts. Of rejoicing, praying, and giving of thanks, no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation in our lives. Now, this, of course, raises the question, how can we rejoice and give thanks even in the difficult times, in the face of sorrow, pain, or even evil things happening to us? Well, this, again, goes back to what we have become in Salvation. We are children of God. This is God's will. These things, rejoicing, praying, giving thanks. This is God's will for those who are in Christ. Now, if you encounter sorrow, pain, and hardship, you encounter no more than your Lord Jesus did. And yet his joy, his peace, his gratitude did not diminish in the slightest. Through these things, he entrusted himself to his heavenly Father, and he knew that God completely understood his pain, would meet his needs, and would work all for the Son's good and the Father's glory. The Trinity's glory, really. We have the same Father if we are in Christ. Therefore, we have the same good hope. Christians will, and they have, and they do experience great pain and sorrow in the world such is our lives but we can and we must rejoice pray and give thanks even through these circumstances god in christ makes this possible for us it is god's will that we will always do ourselves this good and do him give him the glory in each situation it is possible it has become necessary because of what we have become in christ we are the children of god he is still working good even through every hard situation. So in sum, when it comes to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, we can see that because we are children of God through Christ, we are not only to have continual heart attitudes of joy, communion, thankfulness, but we are to actually do those things. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks in each circumstance of our lives. Right, so we hear the teaching of the Apostle, What's our application? Well, we have to ask ourselves, how does your life compare to the apostles' teaching and Jesus' example when it comes to prayer? Are you given to faith-filled prayer instead of anxiety? Do you both have an attitude of prayer to God, constant communion, and the frequent habit of prayer in your life, even through every circumstance? Now, undoubtedly, you realize that, based on what we talked about today, you do not pray as you should. I think this is what we always realize as Christians when we encounter the Bible teaching our prayer. We realize we're not not where we should be. We don't pray as we should. So the more important question for us is, What are you going to do about it? Do not merely tell yourself, you know what, you're right, I should pray more. I'm going to try to do that. No, as in this area, as in every other area of biblical application, you need to get specific. You need to be purposeful in your application. You need to even ask yourself, how am I going to bring this about? What steps am I going to take being empowered by the Spirit and being armed by the truth of scripture, what specific steps am I going to take to make this a reality or more of a reality in my life? What changes am I going to make? You should ask yourself this question when it comes to prayer. Ask yourself the following. Even write down answers when it comes to these questions. How can I cultivate an attitude, a heart attitude of dependence on and communion with God my Father? How can I make my response to stressful situations to engage in believing prayer rather than anxiety? How can I make prayer my habit? When can I pray? Jesus carved out time from his busy life and ministry to pray. What about you? What will work for you? Maybe early in the morning? Maybe in the evening before you get too tired? Maybe when you're driving on a long commute or when you have other regular wait times. Or maybe there's some leisure activity that you currently have in your life that could be partly or wholly replaced by time in prayer. Now, each of us will come up with different answers to these questions based on our differing life circumstances. But it's clear from the scriptures we must make prayer a priority. And above all, I urge you, my brothers and sisters at Calvary, I urge you not to settle for, oh, I just talk to God throughout the day. That is good if you do that, but you need more than that. You need a time of focused and disciplined communion with God, just like your Lord Jesus. You think Jesus wasn't in constant communion with God? Yet he still withdrew to be by himself and to speak to God without distraction. If he needed and he desired to do this, how much more you and I? My brothers and sisters, prayer is one of the easiest and hardest aspects of the Christian life, so frequently neglected to our own hurt. Do you want to be free from anxiety? Do you want to have your requests heard and granted by God? Do you want to have peace in your heart and peace in your relationships? Then do what is necessary to make the habit of prayer a reality in your life. Make those changes. Put a plan into place. Now, perhaps all this talk about prayer has provoked a number of questions in your mind. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'd be more excited to pray if I just understood a little bit more of how to pray. So with the rest of our time today, I want to focus on some prayer FAQ, some frequently asked questions when it comes to prayer, and we'll use the Bible as our guide and answer. And I won't be mentioning specific scriptures for each one of these answers, but this is based on the Bible's teaching and examples when it comes to prayer as a whole. We'll go through maybe eight or so questions. First, what is the physical form? What is the external form that I should take when I pray? What should be my posture? Well, the traditional form in Western Christianity is kneeling with your hands folded, head bowed, eyes closed. You might be surprised, however, to learn that this specific form is never mentioned in the Bible. Rather, this posture appears to have come down to us from medieval times or maybe even classical times as an expression of submission or surrender. You see, the folded hands that we have come to associate with prayer They signify a person's readiness to have a rope or chains put around those hands by the hand of his Lord. So by assuming this posture when you pray, you are supposedly communicating to God that you are completely submitting to him and to his will. Now, if you wish to pray that way, that's totally fine. But be aware, the Bible describes many variant forms, external forms, when it comes to prayer. I mean, people pray kneeling, sitting, standing, bowing, or even laying prostrate in the Bible. There's, of course, also one of my favorite positions. I don't say favorite because I use it frequently, but just because it's awesome. 1 Kings 18.42, this is the Elijah position. It says, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth, and he put his face between his knees. That's a prayer position. So people... They they do all these different things. They also pray with their arms spread out, their arms lifted up to God, or even their arms pounding the chest in contrition. People pray with their heads bowed. People pray with their eyes lifted up to God. People pray with their face directed towards Jerusalem. People pray with their eyes open. They pray with their eyes closed. They usually pray aloud in the Bible, but sometimes they move only their lips or even pray silently in their hearts. People pray Secretly, in a in a room of the house, people pray in church, people pray outside, and people pray in public. There's all sorts of variation. So what form should you take when you pray? Whatever form you want. But remember a few things. The external form itself does not commend you to God. God does not regard the prayer of somebody who's prostrate more than the person who's sitting. Now, it's not about the external form. Really, the form is for you to communicate Better, what you feel to God. Be mindful then of what your form is communicating or what you intend it to communicate. Maybe you feel that you, you just really want to lie prostrate because you're so overwhelmed by a certain thing. Or you you want to stand because you're so filled with joy and you want to lift up your hands to God in prayer. That's fine. You'll probably find that different forms when it comes to your external posture, they most capture what you're feeling at a particular time. Use that to your advantage, to help you focus, to help you really get into what you're saying. That's for you. That's an advantage to you. But do keep in mind overall, you want to use a form that helps you focus. If you find, for example, that closing your eyes when you pray makes your mind wander, don't do that. Keep your eyes open. Now, usually we close our eyes to help us focus, but sometimes it works the opposite way. So do what helps you but more important than any external form is the posture of your heart. What is to characterize my heart when it comes to prayer? You won't be surprised at the answer is here, but th- things like the following, belief and trust in God, humility and submission, sincerity and thoughtfulness, joy and gratitude, reverence and awe, repentance, purity, forgiveness of others, peace in relationship with others, obedience, and persistence. In short, the posture of our hearts is to be one of genuine worship to God. This is far more important than any external posture you take in prayer. Now, as a corollary to this, if this inner posture is important for prayer, does God then hear or hearken to the prayers of unbelievers? If this inner posture is important, does he hear the prayers of unbelievers? Well, God is God. He's omniscient. There's nothing he doesn't know. There's nothing he doesn't hear when it comes to what people say on earth. And God may, for his own purposes, grant what an unbeliever prays for. But he is by no means obligated. In fact, the prayers and the supposed worship of an unbeliever or an evildoer, according to the scriptures, is offensive to God. The prayers of an unbeliever are actually offensive to God. Because consider what Proverbs 15.8 and Proverbs 15.29 say. Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. Or Proverbs 15.29, Yahweh is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The only prayer of an unbeliever that God enjoys and always regards is the prayer of repentance in faith. That inner posture is, of course, critical for God hearing our prayers. So we know a little bit about the form, posture of our prayers, but what should we actually say in our prayers? Well, when we examine the Bible as a whole, when we look at the example prayers in the Bible, we can group the content of Biblical prayers into four basic categories. These categories follow an acronym. The acronym is ACTS, What do these letters stand for? You've probably heard this before. A is for adoration. This is the kind of prayer that is simply meditating on God and praising God for who he is. Adoration. The C refers to confession. This refers to a kind of prayer that is characterized by confession of sin. Asking God for forgiveness and expressing repentance toward God. The T is for thanksgiving. This is a prayer that thanks God for what he has done or what he will do. And then the S is for supplication. That's a term we've already looked at today. Supplication is making requests to God based on his promises, based on his character. So A, adoration. C, confession. T, thanksgiving. S, supplication. Now, these four categories, they don't need to be in any particular order in your prayers. It's not like, oh, I got to start with A, and then go to C, go to T. You can do that, but you're not required to. And these four categories don't need to appear in every single prayer you make. I mean, they don't in every biblical prayer. But in general, these four kinds of prayers should make up your prayers as a whole. They should, these different kinds of prayers should be in each one of your prayers and in your prayers in general. Because that's, that's what biblical prayer looks like. Really, every prayer of yours and mine should be a sincere act of worship expressing dependence to God. This is an important thing for us to remember. We must remember that prayer is worship. It's to be treated as such. Along these lines, beware. Beware of praying formulaically. Supposing that God will hear you because you said all the right words and you fulfilled the correct ritual. Prayer is ultimately about your heart. If you say all the right things, but you have a distracted or a sinful heart, your prayer is at best meaningless, and at worst, it's offensive to God. So don't do that. Instead, pray mindfully. Think about what you're saying and why you're saying it. For example, when you call God by a particular title in your prayers, when you call him Lord, or when you call him Father, are you even thinking about it? Do you really mean it? Do you, in that moment, actually see God that way? Or when you say in your prayers, in Jesus' name, or amen, do you really know what you're saying? Do you really mean what you're saying? Don't just say words to God when you pray. Actually communicate your heart to God. That may mean that you have to pray a little bit more slowly. And it may mean you pray with fewer words. But that's better because then you actually mean what you say. Speaking of length, how long should I pray? How long should we pray? Well, there's no rule about this given in the Bible. And when we look at the example prayers in the Bible, we see great variance. Some prayers are quite long. Just look at some of the Psalms. And others including the model prayer that Jesus gives for his disciples, you know, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Many prayers like that one are actually quite short. More important than length is, as I said, your sincerity, your mindfulness. Don't do, we're specifically told, don't do as the Pharisees did, who prayed with long prayers, supposing that by doing so, they would force God's hand, they would earn God's favor, or they would impress other people. Don't do that. Pray what's on your heart. Regarding God. Regarding your circumstances. Regarding the needs of your brothers and sisters. And a little more practical. More specific piece of advice. If you've not yet established a consistent pattern of prayer in your life. Start with a small and manageable goal. When it comes to your prayers. And then let your prayer times grow from there. Perhaps. Perhaps if you've not been engaging consistently in prayer, you might set a goal for yourself of just five minutes of prayer at a particular time each day. Say, so, you know I've not been really good at praying consistently, but from now on at six o'clock or 12 o'clock or whatever time, I'm going to pray for five minutes. I'm going to pray for five minutes each day. Of course, you can pray for more than one time a day and I heartily recommend you do so. But if it hasn't been your pattern, just start with a small manageable goal. Or instead of a time the time goal, you might say, I want to pray over a certain number of things. I've written down these things that I want to pray for, I've written down these characteristics of God I want to I want to think about. I want to pray as long as it takes to pray through these things in a in a meaningful way. That's another good goal. But start with something that doesn't seem too intimidating and let it grow from there. <clears throat> because we want to get, as we've seen from the scriptures we've looked at today, we want to get into a consistent habit. Of praying now should prayers be spontaneous that is not thought through beforehand until you actually pray them or should they be prepared well really both are fine and we can see that prepared prayers they are totally consistent with Scripture because some of the prayers of the Bible are actually given to us as models and as prayers for us to use I mean again look at the Psalms these are prayer songs these are for us these are for us to use ourselves to pray and sing to God. So what's the important part in terms of spontaneity or preparedness? The important part is, again, that you mean what you pray. Spontaneous prayers can be very heartfelt. And that's why we tend to favor them, I think, as as Baptists. But prepared prayers are often very thought through. And they are especially helpful for, for declaring to God exactly what you mean and what is biblical and especially helpful for leading others in prayer so don't say oh no if you prepare a prayer if you write down beforehand that's evil no it's quite good or can be quite good if you mean what you pray and even spontaneous prayers are not necessarily good if you don't mean it both are fine both can be used but now two kind of bigger questions does prayer work does prayer work? Well, it depends on what you mean. Plenty of people ignore prayer because they've tried prayer and it didn't work. But the Bible actually gives a couple of reasons why prayer doesn't work for people. One, you prayed for something outside of God's will. It's not really that your prayer didn't work. It's just that God answered your prayer in a way that you didn't want. That might be one reason why your prayer didn't work. Another reason is that you prayed for something that was good, but you prayed for it with evil motives. James 4.3 makes it very clear that if your motives are impure, then God is not going to listen to your prayer, even if it's for a good thing, because he's more interested in your heart. And then number three, sometimes your prayer doesn't work because you prayed for something while you remain in sin, remain in unbelief, or remain in conflict with your brethren. Bible makes very clear that these kinds of things will hinder or even wreck your prayers. After all, God's a good father. If he's a good father, how's he going to ignore all the disobedience and the barriers set up by his kids to a relationship with him? Or how's he going to ignore how one of his children is totally mistreating the other children in his family? He's not going to say, hey, I'm just going to keep giving you what you want. No, he's going to say, look, I hear your prayers, but we got to talk about something else first. We need to deal with the issues, and then we'll get back to your requests. The truth is that prayer does work when asked according to God's will as expressed in the Bible and according to God's way, his timing, his choice. This is why Jesus is able to make the wild claim that he does in chapters 14 and 15 of the Gospel of John. Jesus says there multiple times whatever you ask, he's speaking to his disciples, his believing disciples, whatever you ask the father in my name, it will be done for you. That's quite a guarantee. And that's why prayer should be the antidote to all our worries. You know that God will hear and God will act. Now, again, his answer might not come the way you think or in the timing that you think, but it will come and it will be perfect. Such has been the testimony of believers in the scripture and across the centuries. God hears the prayers of his people when they pray according to the way that the Bible instructs. God is real. His word is true. Therefore, prayer does work. But is it necessary? It's the final question I want to bring up to you in this FAQ. Is prayer really necessary? Well, yes, it is. It's commanded by God. And actually, it's for our benefit. It is a mercy to us. And we sometimes use God's total omniscience or his total sovereignty as an excuse not to pray. If God already knows everything and has everything decided. Then what's the use? Why pray? But the truth is, and you won't be surprised by this answer because I've said things like this before. The truth is God has already decided that your prayer will be the means by which you will provide what he already knows and what he's already planned. The means of fulfilling God's sovereign will is actually your prayers. That's why James says in a rebuke to his audience, you don't have because you don't ask. You're not receiving Because you're not using the means that God has sovereignly designed for you to use to receive your request. Now, you want to test the Lord by not praying? You want to test the Lord's sovereignty? You won't be surprising God, but you will be experiencing the sovereign consequences until you repent. God is sovereignly designed, says this is where my child is going to be disobedient and not pray to me. And I'm going to allow him to continue in that and suffer the consequences. Until his heart is moved to repentance and he prays just as I always meant him to. So we can't use God's sovereignty as an excuse not to pray. On the flip side, we, we sometimes ignore prayer because acting ourselves seems so much more practical. We say, why pray to God when I can just take care of it myself? Well, it is good for us to recognize that we have practical responsibilities to be wise and to be obedient, even while we pray and trust god but we are foolishly proud if we ignore prayer for the sake of so-called practical action we forget that god because he is god is able to make all our actions useless if he so chooses and we also forget that god is able to totally accomplish whatever it is we wish or need without our doing anything i mean consider israel's experience sometimes god totally destroys their enemies without the israelites even going to battle Sometimes he lets them go to battle, but he's the one who actually causes the enemy to be put to flight. You see, prayer is a humbling acknowledgement about who God really is. He's God. He's the one with the control. He's the one with the power, not us. He's the one who makes things happen in the world. Yes, we are the ordained means so frequently, but he's the one with the power. Therefore, we must pray and not rely on Our own practical action. Now, it's again worth emphasizing that prayer is for our blessing. It is not to be a burden to us. God is not some loathsome or or lonesome, rather, or loathsome. He's not some lonesome or vain being who just says, I really wish they would pray to me because otherwise I'm just not going to be happy. No. God doesn't need our prayers in order to be happy. In fact, the person who needs prayer in order to be happy is us. We were designed by our creator God and our father who has given us new birth to pray to him continually. That's what makes us filled with peace. That's what guards us. That's what fills us with happiness. If you ignore that design or if you reject it, you not only dishonor God, but you hurt yourself. You can't go against God's design and win. That's true, not just a prayer, but really with everything. So, brothers and sisters at Calvary, let us pray. Let us pray without ceasing, just as the Bible commands. Now, that's it for this week. If you have more questions about prayer, you can, of course, email me. I know, again, we've only broached the topic. You can email me or you can talk to one of the elders. I'm sure they would be happy to talk with you more about prayer. And especially if prayer has been a struggle for you, speak with another believer who has a consistent habit of prayer and ask them, hey, how can I make prayer more of a reality in my life? What is it that you do that might be a benefit to me? Or give me some advice. Give me some counsel. That is how we can edify one another. Now, next week, we're going to take one more general look at the New Testament epistles as we consider further what it means to become like Jesus. So I look forward to talking with you about that then. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for prayer, but you know, God, that this is an area where we are weak in our faith. We are anxious instead of praying, or we rely on ourselves or we excuse ourselves by your sovereignty and we don't pray. And we only hurt ourselves. God, I pray that you would work in us so that we delight in praying to you. That that is not only our hard attitude, but it is our constant habit. Lord, I pray that you would cause the people to think through practically what steps they can take to make prayer a reality a habit, a frequent action of their lives so that they can see their requests granted by you so they can have your peace. They can be at peace with one another and they can be a shining light to the world. I pray that you would do this, oh God, by your spirit. Amen. All right, thank you guys. I'll see you next week.